We simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. This is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. And today we're going to be talking about a brief report we released last week about the issue of inflation and immigration. The groups pushing high immigration, whether the business-oriented ones ostensibly on the right or the more ideological ones on the left, pretty much say everything is an excuse for more immigration. The sun comes up, it's a reason to have more immigration. The sun goes down, that's also a reason to have more immigration. But one of the arguments they've been making recently is that the significant inflation, the highest we've seen in 40 or 50 years under the Biden administration, can be ameliorated, can be reduced by letting in lots of immigrants. So essentially, it's kind of the uh, excuse du jour. But it does have a certain superficial plausibility. And so our director of research, Stephen Camerata, decided to actually look at it and see what the numbers said. And so we have Steve here in the studio to talk about it. Steve, thanks for coming in. This report is online at our website. It's entitled, Immigration Cannot Significantly Reduce Inflation. So if immigration is cutting the wages of low-skilled workers, why can't it reduce immigration? Right. Well, one of the things that we hear a lot of and what the people whether it be the National Immigration Forum or the Chamber of Commerce or columnists for the Washington Post who are calling for more immigration to drive down wages in an effort to control inflation is, as you mentioned, particularly in lower wage occupations done primarily by workers who have modest levels of education, which can broadly be defined here as workers without a college degree, though we divide the economy in our analysis much more finely but we'll paint with broad strokes here and look at workers who have less than a college degree. So there are, I think, three fundamental problems or issues with the argument that we can use immigration to control inflation. And I'll go through them briefly, and then we can explore them more in depth, if you like. The first is the poor or the less educated or people who don't make a lot of money, it turns out, don't make a lot of money. And so you can't have a big economic impact, at least on the overall economy and overall consumer prices, by reducing the income, that is the wage income and compensation of people who don't have a college degree. Based on data collected in 2020 and 2021, actually, we actually looked at some 2022 data, but mainly 20 in 2021, what we find is that all workers who don't have a bachelor's degree, they make up 60% of workers, but they only make up of 25% of economic output. One, because they don't earn that much to begin with. And two, because the economy is not just labor compensation. It's not just labor, if you will. The other part of the economy is capital. And this is just a brief point here. 
it used to usually be regarded that capital took about one third of GDP, that is capital investment. Or it counted for one third. Yeah. And about two thirds went to labor. But today, that's not what the latest research tends to show. The capital share of the economy has tended to increase somewhat over time. So it's usually thought now to be around 60%. It doesn't make that much different for our calculations, but it matters a lot once you take in this fact that capital is a big chunk of the economy and it's not just labor. So when you do that, you find that all workers who don't have a college education, and there's like 95 million of them, and they are 60% of all working Americans, they only account for 25% of GDP. The rest of the economy is more educated workers and capital, as I said. So even if you lower the wages of these relatively modestly paid workers, you can't have a big impact on inflation. So let's do a thought experiment. What if we lowered wages for these workers who account for 25% of GDP by 10%. That's a big hit. We'd all notice it if our wages suddenly went down by 10%. But let's just continue with this thought experiment. So how much could it translate in lower consumer prices? Well, what is 10% of 25? It's 2.5. If, and this is a big if, if employers chose to pass all those savings on to consumers and didn't retain them as higher profits, again, assuming that, then the possible impact would be around a 2.5% reduction in consumer prices for a 10% reduction in wages for the less educated. That's not a very big effect when you consider consumer prices in just the last year have gone up 7 or 8%. In other words, if you lower the wages of the least educated substantially, you still can't affect consumer prices because, as I said at the outset, they don't make that much. What they earn is not the main determinant of the prices of goods and services in the United States. The second point I'll make briefly is that it's very impractical to imagine that you could have enough immigration to drive down the wages of a broad category of workers that substantially. That quickly, too. And that quickly. So if there's 95 million workers who don't have a high school education and you want to drive down their wages by 10%, how much immigration would you need? Well, there's a debate about these questions, and I can't summarize it here, but in the National Academy's 2016 voluminous or magisterial or whatever adjective you want to use, analysis of immigration and the economy, they have a section in which they say, well, if you want to simulate the wage impact, of increasing the supply of workers, you can assume that each 1% increase in the number or the supply of workers in the United States from immigration should reduce wages by 0.3. So if you really wanted to reduce wages by 10%, you'd have to increase the supply of workers by something like a third to get a 10% reduction in wages. As I said, a 10% reduction in wages may be substantial for the workers harmed, but it isn't going to make much difference to the consumers. But the point is, if you're talking 95 million workers right now without a college degree, well, then you're talking somewhere around 30 million immigrants coming in to the United States if you wanted to lower wages for that population. It would certainly seem like an enormous number of people you'd have to admit in a relatively short amount of time completely impractical. And so basically the effect wouldn't be that big on inflation 
but the effect on the individual workers who would suffer the loss in wages would be pretty significant. Correct. Now, remember, we're making the assumption of 0.3 for every 1% increase. It could be 0.8. Well, then the effect would be larger, but you'd still have to bring in, admit, 10 million, 20 million people to even get that 10. Let's say you think it's 0.6. So instead of for every 1% increase in the supply of workers, you lower wages by 0.3. Let's say you lower it by 0.6. You'd still have to admit 15, 16 million workers to get that effect of 10% reduction, which as we keep saying, wouldn't have that much impact on inflation. Now, the third point I would make about the problematic aspect of this proposal to use immigration to lower wages is that it seems grossly unfair, to put it bluntly. Workers without a college education, not only don't they make that much, but there's a pretty high degree of consensus that they have received very little increase, if at all. In some cases, the wages have actually declined, but their wages have either stagnated or grown very little for two. And depending on how you measure it, you can argue that their wages are actually slightly lower than they were four decades ago or five decades ago. So it seems extremely unfair to take the poorest workers who've generally done the poorest and say, we think they should make less. They're making too much. Related to that problem is that we try to actually help these workers. We spend $95 billion a year in cash, direct cash assistance to low-wage workers in the United States in the form of the earned income tax credit and the additional child tax credit. These are our largest cash assistance program for low-wage workers. Reducing the wages of such workers would clearly undo a significant share of our efforts to help such workers. And also, the cost of these programs would go up as these workers' wages decline, and so that's a negative impact on taxpayers. So even if you make the assumption that consumers would save, although that savings would obviously be very small, you've harmed the poor and you've hit the taxpayer with a bill. It's not at all clear that even in any kind of aggregate sense, any of that is fair, reasonable, or just. Sounds like an ideal Washington program, actually. Yes, right. Uh, I'll give you one other just example in case you want to know. Nearly two-thirds of all the children in America who are in poverty, that is, their parents and they have income so low that they're considered below the poverty line, are dependent on a worker who does not have a bachelor's degree. Not surprising. The more educated workers make the most money. They're generally not in poverty. By the way, there are children in poverty whose parents don't work at all. But the point is, two-thirds of the children in poverty in America today are dependent on the wages and income of a worker who has less than a bachelor's degree. So if you reduce the wages of such workers, you clearly have negative implications for America's poorest children. So the number you gave was about the small amount of the reduction that would come about if you massively used immigration to try to control inflation. But what about specific occupations, specific jobs? Because I think that's the way people think of it more. Like, you know, truck drivers are earning too much, I guess, is kind of the Chamber of Commerce's perspective. And we need to push their wages down. What would the effect be in some of these particular sort of targeted professions or occupations? Yeah, well, it might be more practical because there are obviously fewer workers in a specific occupation than in a broad educational category. 
like less than college. And you mentioned trucking. So we have statistics in the report. It's a very large occupation. The whole transportation and moving and material moving category or occupational category is pretty big. It's about 11 million. But as a share of GDP, all the labor compensation in that occupational category is still less than 3% of the economy. So if you were to reduce wages, again, very substantially by 10% in that very large occupational category, you could still only reduce consumer prices by 0.3% because 0.3% is 10% of three. And it still would require a lot of workers because I say there's 11 million. So, you know, you'd have to increase somewhere around three and a half million people would have to be admitted and they'd have to take jobs in that occupational category. You know, if you throw in and look at other occupational categories, you get basically the same result. So let's say you were say, well, we won't just do it in trucking, which the Chamber of Commerce president actually mentioned when she said we need to lower wages. Let's throw in construction. Well, construction plus extraction workers. Which is mining, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a small share. Most of the category is construction, but mining is a part of it. Not the lowest paid, less educated workers in America. It's about 2.2% of GDP, the wages and labor incomes of people, everybody in construction. So if you reduced wages there by 10%, you know, you're at around two-tenths of 1% of prices. You can't have a big effect. All of these occupations that are predominantly done by the less educated together, we tried to add all them up. It comes out just as you might expect at about 22% of GDP. And the specific occupations are small. We hear a lot of need for healthcare support workers. Well, maybe we do need healthcare support workers, but their pay is extraordinarily low. A huge fraction live in or near poverty. A huge fraction of healthcare support workers qualify for those programs that I mentioned, the earned income tax credit and the additional child tax credit that pay cash. And of the whole economy, the wages that workers make in healthcare support is less than 1% of GDP. Now, there's millions of these workers, but they don't make very much. And as I've said many times, the economy is mostly more educated and higher paid workers plus capital. So if you were to reduce wages for healthcare support by 10%, now you're less than one-tenth of 1% 1 of consumer prices, potentially. And of course, it still has to be mentioned, that assumes that the employers pass it all on to consumers. I think it's fair to assume they would not. So even if all of this worked, essentially, we'd be screwing the poor in order to have none of the desired effect. Right. And remember, too, as I said, capital has been getting a larger share of GDP for a while now. And so when you add more workers and lower wages, which is the specific goal of such a policy that we've been discussing, you would tend to assume that a significant fraction would be retained by capital in the form of higher profits. So if you want capital to make more money, even though they've been doing quite well in the last few decades, then this is kind of the policy you want. So I guess the bottom line is it's not surprising that the Chamber of Commerce and the Business Roundtable and other spokesmen, the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal would be sympathetic to this. But policymakers in the, I think for the American people, this is not a very attractive set of policy options. And one thing you don't deal with, but it's worth maybe bringing up, is that what would the political fallout of something like that be? I mean, really, because there's obviously discontent with inflation. Inflation essentially means a wage cut 
for everybody. If food goes up, gas goes up, rent goes up, and everybody pays those things. Essentially, what the Chamber of Commerce and more left of center groups as well, National Immigration Forum and others, what they're saying is they want to further reduce the wages of people who are already earning the least amount of money in order to deal with this inflation issue, partly politically, but partly also for policy purposes. It just seems to me the epitome of a policy that's going to have unintended consequences and could not achieve its declared objectives anyway. Yeah. I mean, look, you don't have to be an expert in polling, though we at the center and others have asked this question, when employers face a shortage or tight labor market, would you like to see them be able to bring in more immigrant workers or should they recruit more American workers? What makes more sense for the country? And the overwhelming majority of the public responds, just as you would expect, oh, they want to see wages rise. And I don't think it's just because people are sort of are representing just their own interest and most people are workers, not big owners of capital. But I think it's also that the public recognizes, they may not know the latest research, but they recognize things have not gone great for workers for decades, that especially the working class, they don't make any more money. In many cases, they make less. The more educated workers seem to be getting all the wage gains. A large share, another thing you could look at is how much of increases in productivity are going to the higher paid workers or to capital. And again, all of that shows that the working class, and we'll just define it here broadly as people without a college education, have generally done poorly. And I think the public senses that. And that's why this kind of policy would be politically disastrous for a politician trying to make it. It's never popular to say, we need to lower wages. Yeah, maybe on the editorial pages of the Wall Street Journal in particular, that might be a very popular sentiment. And maybe at the annual meeting of the Chamber of Commerce, but out in most of America, it most certainly is not a political winner. In fact, The Economist, The Economist magazine, actually did a poll on this exact question. This was in February, but if anything, it may have gotten worse since then because inflation has. But the question they asked, this was The Economist magazine hiring YouGov, which is a polling group, does a lot of these polls. It's not a political thing. It's not partisan. They asked specifically here, quote, do you think the following measures intended to reduce inflation are a good idea or a bad idea? And the one they asked was increase immigration to reduce worker shortages is the way they put it. And it was two to one against, basically. Bad idea was 47%. Good idea was 25%. A very high, not sure, 28%. And, you know, interestingly, as a partisan split, Republicans and independents were against it. Democrats, interestingly enough, were for it. Hispanics and blacks likewise think it's a bad idea. Those without a college degree, clearly three to one were against it, but even those with a college degree were significantly against it. So this isn't just speculation on our part. This is an actual thing that somebody thought to ask and people said what they thought. Yeah. And keep in mind that poll didn't ask the mechanism by which you would be using workers to keep down wages. Well, they specifically said immigration. That's the thing. But they didn't say, as you read it there, use immigration to hold down wages to keep down inflation. They just said to solve worker shortages. Yeah, as a way of reducing inflation is what they were saying. Right. But you're right. They didn't draw the direct conclusion. conclusion. In other words, a lot of people may not sort of connect the dot that what they're talking about is reducing wages, wages right. rather than just, oh, providing extra workers for businesses. But in fact, right. when the labor market is tighter, what happens? Wages rise, me. right? Look, work or labor is like any other thing 
It's whether it's like cars or ingots of steel or computer chips or lemonade. When it's in short supply, the price rises. And in this case, if there's a tight labor market, workers are in short supply, the price of labor will rise. And the price of labor is compensation, both wages and non-wage compensation. And so the idea to increase immigration, to hold that in check or even reduce it, is you're increasing the supply and thus lowering the price of labor, which again is wages and non-wage compensation. And the flip side of what you're talking about is that if the wages of less skilled workers went up, it wouldn't have that much effect on increasing inflation. In fact, Phil Martin, he's a professor at University of California, Davis, writes on agricultural issues. And he's written, obviously, the percent, the number changes as the economy changes. But he said something like, if farm workers all got a 40% raise overnight, that the increased spending for the average family on fruits and vegetables would be minuscule. So it's the flip side, basically, of what you're talking about in this report. I'm glad you mentioned that. Mark, because I wanted to mention farming. There's an unfortunate tendency for a lot of people when they think of immigrant labor to think of farming, that they imagine that, well, gosh, isn't it the case that that's really where immigrants are heavily concentrated? Which may have been the case 50 or 60 years ago, but it is But now. hasn't been the case for right. decades. Right. Pew Research estimates that only 4% of all illegal immigrants work in farming. And when you define that category even broader, which is a sort of standard way to do it with Census Bureau data that we're using here, is uh, like farming, fishing, and forestry all together, it's still at most, I'll place the numbers in context for you, you know, you're looking at somewhere around 25 million, 26 million immigrant workers in the United States right now, and maybe five, 600,000 at most work in farming. It is a tiny fraction of immigration now. Again, five, six decades ago, that might not have been true, but that's not where immigrants, that's not even where illegal immigrants are concentrated. But let's just stay with farming, fishing, and forestry. Altogether, the labor incomes in that sector account for 0.7% of GDP. Those workers don't make much, and the whole sector is just not that big. So even if you were to reduce races 10, 20% in that sector, you can't even affect consumer prices by 1%. It's just too small. That's just not where we spend most of our money. It's not where the GDP is. But most importantly, prices even of food reflect capital investment. They reflect herbicides and pesticides, transportation, market at the grocery store, all these other inputs. Labor in the farm sector has a trivial effect on overall consumer prices, but even prices for food is mostly not determined by what you pay the person who picks the apple or head of lettuce. Right. And that's the important point. It's a small sector, low paid. And I think, you know, you could make a very reasonable argument that letting wages rise in that sector would be a fair and just and reasonable thing to do. Given, and wouldn't cost very much. Like, not only would it not cost much, it's a very difficult job and people don't make that much who do it. So I think you could make an argument from an equity point of view, letting wages rise would be good public policy. But I think you can make that same broader argument for the less educated in general. So we're not obviously giving advice on how to control inflation. We're just talking about the immigration part of it. I mean, if the wages of you know people working at the cafeteria are not what's driving inflation, why do we have this inflation? What are some of the causes 
that aren't related to immigration and aren't really amenable to immigration-related solutions. Yeah, I mean, of course, the current rapid increase in prices has many likely causes, including government spending, particularly massive deficit spending, growth in the money supply, unusually low interest rate, pent-up demand due to COVID-19. People are like, well, now I can get out, I can buy and get the things I want. And of course, supply chain and bottlenecks, a lot of which are not even in the United States and which we have almost no control over. And we have problems at our ports. But to the extent China has a lockdown or we have insufficient port capacity, one of the biggest causes was keeping interest rates extremely low. We can understand why that decision was made. But as is always with such a macro policy, like all the government spending that occurred during COVID, it's very hard to fine tune. And it looks like we overshot. You could say we should have been able to see that and so forth, maybe, but we didn't. But again, flooding the market with immigrants is not going to solve the problem of overspending or excessively low interest rates. We're going to have to make the hard choices of more responsible spending and raising interest rates. And not flooding the economy with more dollars. I mean, that's kind of the increase the money supply. Each dollar is worth less. I mean, that's what it amounts to. Yes, exactly. But again, immigration is not going to be a lever that we can push as a practical matter, as a mathematical matter, and even as a matter of fairness to have much impact at all on inflation. The numbers make that clear. And the last thing I wanted to touch on, I mean, we're basically done here, but it really is kind of funny that the supporters of mass immigration and increased immigration actually say, no, immigration doesn't cut the wages of the poor. It actually increases the wages of Americans. So which is it? Is it increasing their wages or lowering their wages? I mean, again, this is kind of the sun comes up. It's an argument for more immigration. The sun goes down. It's another argument for more immigration. Right. There's a lot to unpack here. But basically, for years, the Chamber of Commerce, the National Immigration Forum, as others, says immigration has no effect on wages. In fact, it makes them go up. Well, if that's true, then you can't use it to reduce wages and control inflation. It doesn't make any sense. But in effect, people are making the opposite of their argument. There is a slight nuance here if you're going to go a little bit deeper. One argument, the reason people sometimes argue that immigration doesn't reduce the wages is they say it doesn't reduce the wages of natives. It reduces the wages only of immigrants. Oh, great. So many of the poorest workers in the United States are immigrants. So if you argue that immigration doesn't affect natives, it only affects earlier waves of immigrants. Well, the vast majority of those people are legal residents of the United States. They're either citizens or legal immigrants. And since many of them have low incomes, why would you want to make them poor, them and, of course, their children? The other point to make is mathematically the argument becomes totally absurd. If you looked at less educated immigrants, they're 4% of the economy. So if you reduce their wages, just the immigrants, by 10%, you could only have a 0.4% impact on consumer prices. So the argument that even if you accept the idea that it's only earlier waves of immigrants, who are harmed by new immigration, then the argument that it will somehow stem inflation by reducing their wages is even more absurd because they're a very small fraction of total GDP. And that's the mathematics of it. But the fact is, like you said, most immigrants are either U.S. citizens now or they're legal immigrants. So how is it even in the national interest to be reducing their wages? Because once they're here and part of our community, it's very much in our interest to make sure that they prosper just as other 
Americans prosper. So the idea that we should give the shaft to earlier immigrants in order to have this trivial and probably non-existent effect on immigration is just, I mean, it's morally absurd, but even from a public a national interest perspective, even if it were to work, it would be a bad idea. That's for sure. Um, we've exhausted this policy. The paper is online at our site. It's called Immigration Cannot Significantly Reduce Inflation, cis.org. It's right at the top, actually. And we'll have Steve in in the future for more commentary on number crunching because he is our chief number cruncher. He has a team, his co-author actually on this is Karen Ziegler, and he's got a team that does this as Steve likes the joke. He puts the think in think tank, and I hope this podcast exemplifies that. So thanks, Steve, and we'll have you on in the future. Thanks for having me. And finally, I wanted to follow up on something we talked about in last week's podcast. If you remember, we had two of our analysts on, Rob Law and Art Arthur, talking about Secretary Mayorkas, DHS Secretary Mayorkas's appearances before House committees. Well, last week, he appeared before Senate committee as well. And while there weren't the same fireworks there, it was a revealing event, a revealing presentation by the secretary. And Art Arthur, Andrew Arthur, wrote about it, a blog post on it this week. The title of it was, Mayorkas Testimony Reveals Biden Administration No Longer Trying to Deter Illegal Migrants. And the interesting thing that Art gleaned out of Mayorkas' testimony was that this really is the first administration ever of any party that has a policy of not trying to deter illegal immigration. This isn't to say they're inviting illegal immigration. I mean, you know, there's some people, immigration hawks get a little kind of carried away with themselves. The administration is not encouraging illegal immigration as much as possible and importing voters and all the rest of that. I think what we're seeing is that this administration doesn't believe that the American people have a right to say no. In other words, that anybody coming to the border, unless he's obviously carrying a nuclear backpack or, you know, is as Ebola coming out of his ears, regardless of his motivations, even if they're explicitly economic, that that person has to be let in and allowed to find some way of staying, applying for asylum and dragging out appeals over and over again until finally he gets to stay. As the unofficial motto of the immigration bar goes, it ain't over till the alien wins. And that is basically the motto of this administration on immigration. And it was pretty clear from Secretary Mayorkas's testimony that this is what it's about, that they're not interested in trying to deter illegal immigration. They're definitely against smugglers. They're trying to act against smugglers, smuggling organizations, that sort of thing. And that's all to the good. But actually deterring migrants themselves by making it clear that we're not going to let them cross the border, and if they do, we're not going to let them stay. This administration doesn't believe in that. And that really does distill what we're seeing at the border, because it's not just a question of they're facing a big job at the border, they don't have enough money, you know, they're distracted by other things, that sort of thing. That's not what this is about. 
This really is a policy difference. They undid all of the Trump administration and even earlier measures to try to deter illegal crossings. They haven't replaced them with some other better idea they have about how to deter illegal crossings. And, you know, they just think that migrants coming here for, you know, a better life or what have you, or fleeing because of disorder and crime in their home countries are essentially the same as people genuinely seeking asylum. In other words, that if you show up at the border, basically it's kind of on us to come up with a good reason to keep you out rather than on you as a foreigner coming to the border to give us a good reason about why we should let you in. And it's important to distill and clarify the issues here so that we're not just yelling at each other and calling names and complaining about what's in the newspaper today. This is a fundamental issue of principle. Does the American people have the right to say no to a foreigner coming to the border? Perfectly innocuous person, not a terrorist, not a criminal, whatever, just a regular guy, might even be a hardworking guy who goes to church and calls his mother every week. But do we have the right to say no to somebody like that? And this administration doesn't believe that we do, period. And that's the stakes that we're talking about when we are confronting what this administration is doing and when we discuss whether that administration should be replaced in the future. That's it for this week of Parsing Immigration Policy. Visit our website, cis.org, for all of our publications. And if you get this podcast on one of the platforms that allows ratings or reviews, please give us a good rating and or review. And if you have any comments or complaints or even compliments, feel free to email me directly at msk at cis.org. Hope to see you next week.